0: I think I needed to push it to the edge to get the depth of page mm. and the emotion. And I do have, ask any of my friends and family, I have a lot of pent-up rage. And so probably best to get it out on the page and not be homicidal. So I feel like it's a safe place to go in a book to push it.
1: Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Darrawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia and a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast. So please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women, the third for 2024. And it's Thursday, the 1st of Feb, as I am talking and recording, and I'm about to do an interview, which I know is going to be fabulous, with Kylie Orr about the release of her second book, The Eleventh Floor. I've read this book. It is absolutely riveting, and I can't wait to talk to, ty- to, and I can't wait to, talk to Kylie about it. Uh, just first of all, a little bit of an update on my own writing news. I'm just in the process of finishing a novella for HQ, the Christmas Anthology. We had an anthology out last year. I was in there alongside Penelope Janu, Alyssa Callens, Della Quinn and Lily Malone. And it went really well. Readers loved it. And we're very excited to be able to do another one, unfortunately, without Alyssa this year. But the rest of us are in the process of getting our drafts into our editor and getting the ball rolling on the 2024 anthology. For mine, I decided to do something a little different this year, which was to write a rom-com I've never written a rom-com before. I'm a huge fan of Emily Henry, and I've been loving reading some other rom-coms. I just finished The Love Contract by Steph a fabulous Australian author, in the holidays, and really enjoyed that. So I thought I'd try my hand at something different. And it was also really different for me because I was writing in first person, present tense. So I usually write close third person or deep point of view in third person and past tense so this was something really different and I just think it's good to mix things up and to try something different every now and then and I have to say that once I got the voice got a handle on the character and the voice it did flow pretty well because with this kind of rom-com it's a very conversational tone and I took the attitude that I was talking to the reader pulling the reader into the narrative you know taking the reader into the confidence of the character so it did flow pretty well from the beginning I used Plotter, PLOTR, to help with structuring. I hadn't actually written a rom-com before. I usually use the kind of Michael Haig three-act structure with the four or five turning points. So I turned to Plotter just to help with a rom-com template, which they had there, and I used a combination of the two. But I have to say that did really help me to get my head around, okay, How do I structure this for a rom-com and also for a novella? Not that it had a novella structure in there, but I just shrank everything down and used similar percentages for each section of the book as I would use for a novel. So the other thing that I did that I found really useful, and this is something that a number of authors have come onto the podcast and talked about as part of their process, was actually going back and re-reading not only the last scene, but often the few previous scenes and sometimes even going back to the beginning of the draft that I'd written and coming back up to the scene that I was about to start. And I know Rachel Johns, this is part of her process. She's talked about this on the podcast and a number of other authors also use this process. And I guess in the past, I've done bits and pieces of that or it's happened organically. And I think that's what happened this time is that I just found myself thinking, oh no, I need to change something back in chapter one or chapter two. So Every time I'd go back, I'd tweak that and I'd revise it. And of course, what happens then is you're revising as you go. And it also takes you back into the headspace of the character. It reminds you of what their wants and their goals and their motivations are right from the beginning, which is really important to keep in mind all the way through the writing of the book. And for me, for this particular novella anyway, I found that a really useful process. So I think that's what I'm going to be adopting as I go forward into my next project. So this week's writing tip is based on that. It's about that experience of when you do get stuck. It's usually because you don't know enough about the character. You don't know what their motivations are strongly enough. You don't know what their backstory is. You don't know perhaps what their wound is or how that impacted on them. You might know it on the surface, but maybe you haven't gone deep enough into that either in the writing that you've done so far or in your kind of note-taking. So you really need to be clear on what the character's wound is, what is the thing in their past that has really damaged them, has made them believe a certain thing that isn't necessarily true, which is often called the lie. And also thinking about what the character wants and what the character needs, which are generally two different things. So what a character wants is a conscious thing, something they're striving for. It's an external goal that they really want to achieve, and what they need is Usually a subconscious thing that they're often not aware of and the thing that will often bring them into conflict with others in the story. And it's that realization of what they actually need, which is part of the character's growth and arc as the story unfolds. Now you might not know all these things at the beginning and some of these will start to become clear to you as you're writing, but I do think it's important as you are continuing through the writing process and the drafting process that you go back every now and then and keep reminding yourself of what those things are. And I think that's where going back to the beginning often and working your way back up to that next scene can really help with that or maybe using some index cards or poster notes as a reminder and keeping them present so that you can keep referring to them and checking in that you've got those things covered because you really need to be aware of what those things are in every scene. They might not be openly discussed, but they need to be that kind of background to what the character is saying, thinking, experiencing, and doing. So my character's goal, for instance, in this novella was that she wants to run her own business independently, to be independent of her parents. But at the same time, she's actually relying on her father's money to finance that business. So she's really in a conundrum. And she also is extremely independent and doesn't really want to accept help readily. So Because of her family history, she lies to keep the peace and protect herself, which does lead her into all sorts of trouble, some of which I hope is quite amusing. And I did work some of this out before I started writing, using the character builder at One Stop for Writers, which I have talked about before and I highly recommend. But I did also stop at various points and make sure that those through lines were there in the background of every scene. So that's the tip for this week, is just to make sure you're really clear on the goals, wants needs and motivations of your character so in other news I've been putting the finishing touches on my on-demand course getting inside your character's skin which is all about writing in deep point of view that will be available very soon through my website pamelacook.com.au and there will be some great material there to help you really get in touch with your character's emotions regardless of whether you write in first or third person Uh, There is a current round of Turn Up the Tension going, and there will be another round of that starting in April. And of course, I have the next chapter writing retreat in May, and you can find out more about that on the website. There are still a few places left for the retreat. Really excited to be doing my first retreat in a very long time and already have a great crew of writers on board for that. So let's get on to today's interview. I don't always read the full bio for my guests, but Kylie's Bio is really interesting in that she has done some amazing work before even having her first novel published. So let me tell you about Kylie Orr. Kylie Orr is an Australian author of dark and twisty contemporary fiction. Her debut novel, Someone Else's Child, was published in 2022 to industry and reader acclaim. Her new novel, The Eleventh Floor, a page turning read about a sleep deprived first time mum and a crime she wishes she didn't witness hit shelves yesterday. On the 31st of January, Kylie embraced her love of writing when her first son was born, as many of us do when we go into the child-rearing phase of our lives. 23 years and three additional children later, Kylie's feature articles appear across a wide range of Australian publications, including The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and News Limited. She was a regular contributor to Australia's number one parenting website, Essential Baby, which boasted an audience of 1.2 million readers each month. Her short stories have been recognised in numerous awards, including Apollo Bay Wordfest and Stuart Haddo short story competition. Her Who's? series of children's books was released with Lake Press in 2017. Kylie's desire to delve into the complex stories of everyday people and their secret lives behind closed doors saw her turn to contemporary fiction. Her debut novel was awarded the Dimmicks Fiona McIntosh Masterclass Scholarship and long listed in the Ritual Prize and the Mislexia International Novel Competition. When she's not writing, she's trying to keep up with 70-year-olds who share her yoga class or walking the hills of the Dandenong Ranges where she lives with her husband, four children and a cat who meows relentlessly. Kylie Orr, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Hi, thank you for having me. So excited. Yeah, it's lovely to have you on, and I absolutely loved the book, so I can't wait to talk about it. This is your second published book, Kylie, the first being Someone Else's Child. Yep. Yep. I'll say that again. This is your second published book, Kylie, the first being Someone Else's Child, which you've got there beside you. Before we get on to talking about the 11th floor, could you walk us along your path to publication when you first got the inkling that you wanted to write and then how you got from that point to holding your first published book in your hand?
0: Yeah, sure. I was freelance writing, had my first baby. I was working in human resources and then I didn't love my job. And so thinking about going back, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my husband said to me, You've always loved writing, why don't you just write? And I just scoffed at him, like, are you serious? This is not a job. Like how can unless you're a journalist, I didn't know how you made money as a writer. So I started pitching articles to parenting websites and then got picked up by Essential Baby and was writing for them regularly, and so ended up writing for them for fifteen years. And so that turned into a freelance writing career. And then I kept having babies, so I ended up with four of them, all, planned, but very hard to make a career around. But when I was reading to them when they were young, there were so many children's books that I thought, God, how do these get published? These are rubbish. I can do better than that. So I did try my hand at children's books and I did get a little set of four published. So my head was in the children's book space because I had young kids. And then I got contacted on LinkedIn. By a commissioning editor at one of the big publishing houses, who said to me, "I've read some of your articles, and I think you have a really good voice for women's fiction." Oh wow! Yeah. And so at the time, I was a little bit dismissive of that because I had no idea about the industry, and I'd never thought about writing a novel. And I was part of a writing group, so I went to my writing group and thought, "Should I say anything about this? Because it's not children's." Books are related to that. So I'll maybe I'll just say it. And they were like, are you crazy? So nobody ever gets contacted, just tell her. Tell her, you, yes, you've got ideas for books. And I'm like, but I don't. They're like, you've just make something up. So I ended up, I did have ideas once I sat down and I thought about it. So I sent her two synopses. One was for a funny book and one was for someone else's child. And she said, funny books don't sell. This is eight years ago. I oh, changed. Yeah. I'm really interested in your other one. Send me the first 20,000 words. Oh, my Lord. I didn't know how to write a book. So I sat down next to my husband in our shared home office. He's a computer programmer, so he writes code. And I said to him, I don't know how to write a book. He said to me, start at the start. Thank Very wise sure. advice creative help. What is the start? I didn't even know what the start was. Anyway, long story short, into 20,000 words, she went on maternity leave. She came back, rejected it. And then I spent the next five years trying to finish and shop around this. And entered the Ritual Prize.
1: So sorry, Kylie, just rewind a little. In that five years, did you think, oh, I need to actually learn how to write a book? Did you do courses or anything? Yeah, I needed to learn the art, really the craft of writing.
0: So I used to write a lot of short stories just for myself and competitions, and that was a good way to exercise that writing muscle. But then I did a couple of short courses. I won a scholarship to Fiona McIntosh's commercial fiction writing. Okay. So that was great, actually, because I it gave me the confidence that maybe my writing had something. I also did a paid mentorship with Kat Right. So that was months where I had to submit 10,000 words every month to her and then we'd have a Zoom for an hour and she would talk me through different parts of what was working and what wasn't. But at the time, my dad was dying of cancer. So yeah. Catherine was amazing because I just would sit at my keyboard and sob and mm-hmm. my husband next to me would say, do you think you need to have a break from the writing? So I ended up emailing Catherine and said, I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to invest in the writing while my dad is studying. So she put it on for six months for me. She was lovely. And so anyway, that taught me to get to the end of the book. Then I did Fiona's masterclass and that um, honed a lot of the skills. And then I started the process of pitching to publishers and either got radio silence or rejections. And, but I was determined. And Fiona McIntosh's advice for me was, okay, just move on to the second book. You're getting rejections. And I was absolutely not okay with that advice at the time because I'd invested five years in this book and it felt like I was giving up on it. And I did believe in the story. So I was quite determined that I would find a home for it eventually. But I did take her advice and start on the new book, which was great because it got my head out of that obsessive space that I was in And then I entered the ritual prize. I was trying to just enter whatever I could just to get bites, just to give myself deadlines, to let stuff go, to just send it, let it go, see what happens, and was never expecting anything. Also, I was confident that um, somebody would read it at least. Like in a slush pile, you don't even know who's reading it, whereas Mm. in a prize, you know that there's a judging panel and you never know who's on that judging panel. And so I had entered the Victorian premier's literary awards and didn't get shortlisted but jp Pomare was a judge and he contacted me on email i just want to let you know that it was really hard the panel found it hard to come to a consensus obviously because we all have different opinions and whatever but I want to let you know your story's got legs, and I think you should keep going. And they are the crumbs that you oh, need, aren't they? Hundred percent.
1: That's so good that, to get that. like um, And he's such like a, a little supportive. lifeline, isn't it? It's a lifeline. Yeah, because you're
0: ready to give up, and then you just get these little bites, and you're like, "Oh, well, okay, maybe I will keep going." So I entered the ritual prize and kind of forgot about it because months down the track, yes. that you hit. And then I was at it visiting a friend, and then I got in the car and I had all these missed calls and messages and I was like, what? so I called one of my friends back and she said, you've been longlisted in the ritual crimes and I pulled over to side of my own and cried because oh. I thought this is where it turns around, like finally all this hard work. And so I didn't get shortlisted but I got an agent. Right. From that, yep. the agents started pitching my book in 2020 in March. Okay. Just as the pandemic. Correct timing. <laughs> I just feel like it's such swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Like yeah. you have these highs, and then you're like, so I got rejections brought through the agent and I was okay with the first four. She pitched eight publishers and then when the fifth one came through, I cried because I was like, now the balance is swinging more to the no. Mm. I also found it hair that day. Oh, it was a oh day. no. Oh. I was like rubbing my chin and then I found it and I was like, okay, I've got my fifth rejection and now my life is over. My life was over. I was truly a little bit traumatic. <laughs> Thankfully. I got eight rejections and then I heard that there was an editor who was looking to nurture new debut authors, women's fiction, looking for kind of meaty topics. And so I asked my agent, could you please pitch her? And she was a little bit, I think she's a bit niche. I'm not sure this quite fits. I'm like, who cares? Pitch anyway.
1: Yeah.
0: Like, I'm being rejected by all the ones that you thought would fit. And that was when I got into two book deal. Yeah. So, yes. It was fabulous, but a long road and mm. many cries and many banging on the keyboard. Many times my mother dropped around a bottle of wine because she didn't know what else to do because she's doesn't really understand this industry, but does anybody? No. No. But yeah, it's been a very long, hard journey, but I am a determined pain in the arse.
1: And I think that's the key, Kylie. I was going to say that word that you used a couple of times now, determined, determination. If you don't have that, you may as well forget it. Like you've really got to be determined haven't you you've got to oh. really believe in what you're writing and really want it to be able yeah, to and stick with stamina, it
0: because it's a bloody long road yeah I've yeah given up many times and I did do other things like I kept the freelance writing and then if I was frustrated with it all I would go and do something else write a short story or I pitch an article about some random banal just to switch it up a bit because I yeah. can get a little bit Like one eye, just like I am, I am going to get this type of a
1: personality. I'm going to (laughs) win. So, how did it feel after all that? How did it feel when you opened the box that day or when you opened the mail and you had that first copy of your book in your hand? It was amazing. I
0: like, I had a friend who gave me this candle when I got my book
1: deal, and it was like a fancy,
0: very expensive $80 candle or something that I would never. And so I was holding on to it, waiting for the moment. Like, when should I li- light this? So I lit it on the day of my came. Yeah. and I was, yeah, it's very emotional. You finally yeah. hold it, in and it smells like a book. It looks like a book. It's, yeah, it was great. Yeah,
1: but yeah. it's the realization of a dream, isn't it? So course, yeah, pretty it's pretty big. Yeah. And what do you think? We are going to get onto the eleventh floor in a minute, but. What do you think that the writing of that first book taught you that helped you then in, in writing and what kind of lessons did you learn from that first experience that you then took into this second book?
0: I learned that I'm a very chaotic writer and that planning is not my thing. I am actually a very organized person. I have to be. I've got four kids. But my life, I am a, like a to-do lister. I plan things out, and but in book writing, I don't do any of that and that makes the editing process horrific. And so what I learned from the first is I need to have a little bit more of a plan than I did for the first. So I was a little bit more diligent about timelines. I don't use Scrivener or any of those. I literally use Word and Excel Mm. and sometimes Pinterest. So I started an Excel spreadsheet so I could keep track of dates and also in this the second book there there is a pregnancy so I had to make sure that the timelines matched up and there's a baby with certain ages I had to make sure it was the right timeline but all the seasons and stuff like that. Like yeah. I'd have Inna come back and say she's wearing a summer dress in Melbourne in June. That's mm-hmm. not so I, I learned that those smaller details actually if you can nail it in your first, or well, not nail it, but just have a better yeah. handle on it in your first draft, it doesn't make editing as painful. So I learned to be a real bit more structured, but I still don't plan and I don't know the end. Sometimes I don't even know where the plot's going, but I do because that has taken the book on many tangents I would never have planned for.
1: So, mm. And it's part of that creative process, isn't it? You're learning that as you go and coming up with the ideas as they arise and seeing yeah, where that next thread's going to take you, yeah.
0: And sometimes you follow the character into a pretty weird dark space and maybe have to edit that out later. But I think if you planned and you wouldn't go there, I'm sure you will agree that this goes to some pretty dark places. It does I... go to
1: some dark places. It definitely does. So before we go any further, Kylie, how about yeah. you give us the blurb so that people know yes. what we're talking about?
0: Okay. So the 11th floor is about Gracie, who's a new mom and she's struggling. She's got a baby, Theo, who does not sleep. He's eight months old. Slightly autobiographical, but only that part of it. Nothing else is autobiography. Just so you know. And her husband suggests that she take the night off to herself and goes and stays in a hotel so she can just recuperate, have some rest. So she does that. I think she's just going to sleep and decides to go to a rooftop bar and has a drink meet the man, ends up in his room, has no recollection of how she got there. And as she sneaked out of his room on the 11th floor, she witnesses a crime and she can't report it because then she has to say she was in his room and then her life pretty much derails. Be a fair summary?
1: I think that's a great summary and it's a difficult book to not give spoilers off. So... I'm very yes. aware of that as we're talking about it too, because there's a lot that you don't want the reader to know up front. So yeah, I think those things are good to know, but uh, we'll try and avoid any spoilers as we go through. Yeah, I do want to start, Kylie, with the opening, and I might even get you to just read those opening couple of paragraphs if you wouldn't mind. I have to say when I read it, I just went, oh, wow, and I'm not blowing smoke there. I just went, oh my God, that is one cracker of an opening. So I'm going to ask you to just read those couple of paragraphs and then we can talk about it.
0: I do think that I will never be able to replicate this opening. I don't know where it came from. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay, you ready? All mothers lie. We lie about how much we enjoy motherhood. We lie about how well our babies sleep and how easy breastfeeding is. We lie about the kind of sex we're having and the amount of alcohol we're drinking. I lied too.
1: Okay, I've got goosebumps just listening to you read that, partly because I guess I know what's coming in the story. But also just having talked to you about your history in writing and the fact that you wrote for parenting magazines, parenting journals, there's very much a sense of that lived experience in those lines, even though it's fiction. So you said you're not really sure where it came from. Yep. Can you tell us what happened when you put those lines down? Did you know straight away, yes, this is the opening?
0: I did. And I, with my first book, I'd written quite a few different opening chapters and kept swapping them around and wasn't sure. And this one never got swapped. like, I, that is it. And I think it was born out of the idea that there's expectations around mothers from society and we do a lot of pretending we do a lot of pretending about how happy we are because we're supposed to be. We've got a new baby. How lucky are we to have a healthy baby? And it's there's no space to talk about the shitty parts of parenting. And I think mothers particularly carry that burden. And so I wanted it to be raw and honest and straight out of the gates so the reader knew what they were in for.
1: Mm, you've done that so brilliantly. And I think... Thank you whether it was conscious or not, the very clever use of we, the second person there, and then going in into I. So you're making it like the general experience, which everybody relates to. Yeah. And then mothers in particular, but then narrowing down into this particular character's story. So I think that's such a clever tactic at the beginning there. So.
0: Thank you. That was from, I'm also doing professional writing and editing at RMIT very slowly. I will finish it in... 2089, the way I'm going. But we did actually do a class. I think it was with Anna Snookstrom, who's a great writer and lecturer. And we did talk about we as an inclusive. And so I have a feeling I might have originally written it in first person and then changed it because I want to bring the reader in
1: me. No, I think it works beautifully. And then, of course, we go into her experience with Theo and the rest of the stories in first person. One of the really interesting things about Gracie is her synesthesia. Now, I was really interested to read this because it's something that I've, I find fascinating. I've read a couple of books before that have used this as part of the characterization. but in this particular case with Gracie, she associates people's names with particular colours. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of her personality? Sure. So that, I'd never heard of it before, but my sister-in-law
0: is a GP and she has it and so she didn't realize she had it until she went to medical school and they were talking about the cross wiring of senses basically she just thought that's how everybody saw things so when she was naming her babies she was like no that's a brown name i can't do that so i love it every time i see her i'm like what colors you know my name's i don't know i think my name's yellow or white i can't remember but each person who has synesthesia I think sees it differently, Mm. but she could speak to the next person and say, no, Kylie is a white name, and that person would say, no, absolutely not, it's like baby pink. So I find that very fascinating, and then actually my 15-year-old son, when we were talking about it, he's, yeah, the number nine is green. What? Oh, really? I think he might have it too, and I guess if you don't know, that's not how everybody else thinks. I just wanted to weave it in there. Obviously, it doesn't play a massive part in the plot, but it just sets her apart a little bit differently. Yeah, And also I sent a draft to my sister-in-law to read to make sure all the medical stuff was okay. And I think put any acknowledgements, but I just said, her feedback was my favourite because she's, like, I loved this book. It was a page turner, but your colours are all wrong. <laughs> yes, it's fiction. We don't need it. <laughs> That's um, right. And sometimes it didn't work with the plot, like, You think the name Gracie is blue? No, I wanted it to be whatever. It was just a cool little thing to just give your character a
1: quirk, really. I think it's a great idea. I have actually remember years ago seeing, I think it was on Facebook or something, an artist who the synesthesia for her was sound. So she paints beautiful abstract paintings of particular songs. might be a John Mayer song or whatever and just this different arrangement of colours on the page, depending on how she interprets the sound. Wow. It's really cool. Yeah. So, as we said, it is this story does go to some dark places. Gracie has the experience of overwhelm, I guess you would say, with the birth of her first child and managing that. And then her husband says, take yourself off to a hotel and have a break. And she finds herself in this really Kind of difficult situation. There's a lot of different threads going through the story. So there's obviously the thread with how she ends up in the room to start with. There's the issue of the crime itself that she witnesses, the lies and secrets that she has to keep. And you said, Kylie, you're not a planner. So as these different elements of the plot emerged for you in the writing... Did you find it hard to manage them and think, okay, how am I going to weave this into the plot? Where is this thread going to go? How did you deal with that as those things arose for you?
0: Yeah. Look, it was a bit of a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) I think in writing, we talked about punishing your character. Yeah. So I took that a little bit too literally and kept trying to raise the stakes so that the reader would turn the page and check Mm. that it's okay, but. It wasn't enough for me to have her just have this sort of affair going on. And so that's why I planted the crime. But I think I had to have it so the reader discovered along with Gracie at the same time because that was the only way I could pull it together. But I do remember walking, I I walk with a group of friends once a week and one of them's a lawyer and it's nice to have friends who aren't writers because Sometimes they just give you a different perspective and she was asking me how the book was going and said, oh, I've got to tie in this loose end and I want to link this character somehow to something that happened at the start. I just don't know how. And she said, why don't they have to be linked? I was like, mm, maybe they don't. Like you're just, you're trying to tie up everything neatly, not too neatly. I don't write like that, but just, she just gave me another way to think about it and think... Okay, maybe it doesn't actually have to be related. And then the second half of the book, I think because the first half is quite fast, I needed Gracie's character arc to be that she just calmed down, like she, she needed to grow and learn as well about mm. herself and be a bit more accepting of the situation she was in and just her own flaws. And that inevitably slowed the pace. So then I was concerned that if, if I don't keep putting action in, the reader's going to drop off. But the other worry is if you put too much in, the reader will just be like, oh, my God, you have just slammed me in the face. I need some breathing space. Mm. So I did have an editor say to me, why don't you have another sort of plot point towards the end of the book that then again raises the stakes, which is what, where the end twist came in. So yes, trying to tie it all together with an Excel spreadsheet is probably not the most economical way to do things. But anyway, like I said, I write chaotically. So,
1: But you've got to allow your brain to make those connections too. And I think I was talking to, was it when I was talking to Hannah Ritchell, I think, sometimes you just need to give yourself the time and to give your brain that time to really you know, make those connections, play around with the ideas because you can't always just force it on the spot, can you?
0: Oh, and it it reads on the page forced if you force it on
1: the spot. So, yeah,
0: yeah I wrote a lot of the chapters and then I was talking to someone else the other day who was interviewing me. I said, I did often end a chapter with like adrenaline pumping, thinking, oh, my God, have I taken this too far? But no, then I kept okay. thinking, just go there and you can always bring it.
1: If you yeah, need to. yeah. But, yes, I
0: did have a lot of things I had to tie together and hopefully manage to do that eventually.
1: Yeah. Did you make many major changes in the later revisions and when you're working with your editor? I did cut
0: one whole chapter because I was worried about pace and they were like, this chapter is not really serving purpose. I did, funnily enough, have a fellow writer from RMIT, my course. We swapped manuscripts He's, he's only just had his first baby now, but at the time he was like a single white male. Yeah. Not exactly my demographic for audience, although any single white male is very welcome to read it. But I just thought he's not really going to relate to the themes probably. And he was very, he wrote like a sci-fi. I don't read sci, So, you know, we were both reading in genres we don't normally read in, but his feedback to me made me laugh. He gave me like 11 pages of feedback. He was amazing. Wow. But one of the points he made was, there seems to be a lot of things happening in parks in this book. And I was like, what? So I had to reread. There's two scenes. <laughs> two scenes in parks. One where she's pushing the baby on a swing and another one is a birthday party. And- because then I was like paranoid. Oh, God. And then I thought, no, all mothers will relate to this. The 100%
1: is
0: savior when you have yep. little kids, it's free, it's outside, it's breaking up the day. It's one way to maybe speak to another human adult. And because he didn't have kids, I think he just did not relate to them. And so I left those in.
1: Yeah, good. Like you say, it's two scenes, not
0: exactly the whole book. Yeah, no, it wasn't overwhelmed. But obviously that stood out to him. Like, why are we in a park again? That's what mothers do, mate. It's how we get through the day. It's our
1: sanity. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you said, Kylie, you use that kind of mantra, make things worse. There were points that sounded like for you where you thought, oh, wow, I've gone too far. But then when you really thought about it, Did that become something you really then did want to do, Let's really to see how far you could push those issues and push the storyline?
0: Yeah, I think I needed to push it to the edge to get the depth of Mm. the page and the emotion. And I do have, ask any of my friends and family, I have a lot of pent-up rage. And so probably best to get it out on the page and not be homicidal. So I feel like it's a safe place to go in a book. To push it, and then it's going through editing processes. So if an editor thinks no, like you, can, and they didn't say no to anything, mm-hmm. I did have one editor who was very concerned about where I was placing Theo a lot of the time. The baby, okay. so I had. Put Where's him on the, the baby? Th- yes. So she in a cafe, I'd put him on the floor as a crawling baby in the little play corner that some cafes have. She was. Yeah. Like, She's no, it's full of germs and I'm like, yeah, but Gracie's not really thinking straight. And that lots of cafes and places have those little corners with all those gross toys that babies suck on and stuff. Yeah, that's how they build their immune systems. Yeah. So then, and then another editor had replied and said, I'm okay with this, Kylie. So obviously, it's just depending on your parenting style, perhaps. Yeah. Also, it was in the middle of the pandemic, the editing that was going on, so there was a lot of germ stuff going on in our heads. And then there was another scene where Gracie's near a lake and she kept saying, I'm worried about the water, that the baby's too close to the water. She's going to drown. So I put the baby in a pram. So, you know, that's small, but a lot of the big issues, I mean, they certainly questioned validity of some of it and I was able to back up. Like I'd done mm. my
1: research. I knew it was viable. So even though it does go to some difficult places. Absolutely, yeah. and that's what makes it so gripping. Were you worried at any point about Gracie's likability?
0: Yes, I was worried the readers would think, God, she just continues to make terrible decisions. But I think you don't have to have likable characters, you just have to mm. have relatable characters. And I think if people can suspend their disbelief for long enough, they can reason and that she was in a really bad place she was tired she made a bad decision and then just kept making more bad decisions and I think also my brother has four kids also but he used to say his sons don't follow one bad decision with another bad decision and so that kind of stayed in my mind for Gracie I was like she does keep making these bad decisions and I have again the best advice read some early reviews and it's getting really great solid strong reviews but a few people have been like some of the time i was just like for god's sake gracie why are you making this decision but i feel like it's fiction and you can and as long as it's somehow relatable then they will excuse the character and i think she grows enough in the end that people can go okay she's learnt from her mistakes
1: Yes, definitely. And yes, it is fiction, but also sometimes that happens in life. Like we all know those people who think, why do you keep doing that? Why yep. do you keep making those choices? So it's definitely something that, that is believable. It was for me anyway. Yeah,
0: I I, you- I think also I hopefully managed to back up why she was making these decisions. Like The alternative was just too scary for her, and she thought the alternative would derail her life in a way that was repairable. Mm. But as it turns out, the decision she made had some of those effects anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A little bit critical the way we're talking about it. It is, and
1: I know that we can't give away spoilers, but there's one big decision that she makes, and at the time I thought, oh, but the way that that unfolds later down the track, I think goes a long way to helping the reader understand what happened in that circumstance anyway. But it was good that it was questionable at the time, I think, because (coughs) that is what keeps you reading. It's what kept you wanting to find out what's going to happen next. Yeah, You've got your gorgeous banner behind you there, Kylie, and And we've seen the cover. What were your thoughts on the cover when you saw it? Did you have any input into that or were you able to brief designers or it just came to you with that cover?
0: I cried. I cried a lot good happy tears, angry tears, sad tears. I cried when I opened it because I loved it so much. I don't really have much say in that stuff and I don't mind because that's not where my skills Mm. lie. I feel like the publisher knows the market and what works. I think it's a very intriguing cover. I think it's a cover that people will look at and think, if I can just be so blunt as to say I think shit went down there
1: mm.
0: That's what the cover says to me that, oh, some bad stuff happened. So even though someone else's child had a gorgeous, really pretty cover, I think the 11th floor maybe tells the reader more about what, you know, what kind of genre it is and
1: yeah. just,
0: it creates intrigue and the colour yellow is pretty cool. It stands out and... I loved it. So I interviewed the designer and there's actually 11 stripes for the 11th.
1: Oh, wow. So there's so much that goes on. For yeah. And I love the uh, gloss matte effect, like the alternating. And the one up near
0: her brain is all pixelated, like fuzzy. Ah,
1: so it is. So I just, I'm not sure if even if that was deliberate, but that's pretty cool. I love it. It's cover. brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. So you've been throwing yourself into the publicity for the book and I've been following your TikTok, your Instagram. you have oh got. not follow my TikTok. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about TikTok. But you've got a Substack newsletter too, which is called If I'm Honest, and you're writing some great stuff in there. What was the decision on going to Substack? What made you make that choice? I had a little break from Instagram. I love Instagram. I feel at home
0: on Instagram. They were making a lot of changes. I don't understand algorithms and metadata and all that stuff. So I was trying to educate myself a little bit more on that. And I read something that made sense to me. And that was, you could lose your followers tomorrow because you are not in charge of the site. They could ban you or cancel. I don't even know how all that works. But even though I don't have a huge amount of followers, I did think, but I do have good connection. I have good engagement. My, Followers are lovely. I have a lot of comments and there's a lot of fun chats that we have. So then I thought I need to actually get a subscriber list in case Instagram dies in the ass or my following. I still want to be able to connect with people. And also I wanted to, God, how many emails do we get in our inbox? It's just crazy. If you subscribe to everyone you wanted, you'd never have time to Mm. do anything else. So I wanted to give people value for that. And it It took me a while to decide, am I actually providing value and what do I want the tone of the newsletter to be? Like, who am I appealing to? I want to appeal to readers more so because that's my market. But also, I'm very happy to talk behind the scenes, writing stuff and whatever, Mm. but also life. I think that we are full people. We do exist outside of our books. I also, as I mentioned before, my husband works in IT and he is super suspicious of social media. He doesn't have any, he hates it. He said to me years ago about Facebook that you don't get anything for free, like they're selling your data. And at the time I didn't care, I didn't know what that meant. But then when I was writing parenting websites, I always ran my articles by him because he was, he's quite strict about privacy and Mm. stories that we tell about our children. And whose story is it to tell? And like I wrote a funny one about one of my kids who stole a kinder surprise once that I didn't realise he was four. I feel like in the context of his life, it's actually just a funny story. But at the time my husband said, the internet is forever. What if that turns up when he's going for a job somewhere? I'm like, oh, for God's sake, it's four kind <laughs>
1: kinder
0: surprise, you know, over it. So that's a very long answer to why I started the Substack. And also it's just a way for me to channel thoughts. If I'm going to write something that has value to my readership, what do I write about? What am I reflecting on this month? And I do feel like the promo for the book, so awkward as an author to do this. We know we have to do it and maybe I make it look like I'm doing it okay, but God, it's uncomfortable. You just feel like you are spamming people every minute, but then also they don't see every single one of your posts. And it's a massive achievement to write a book. So. Maybe it's women more so than men that feel this way, but I just really struggle with the, you don't want to spam the audience. I hate it when I'm scrolling and someone is just trying to sell stuff at me. I hate accounts that just promote their own stuff and never share anyone else's, Like it's just not well-rounded. So even though my book has just come out and I, like yesterday was the formal release day and so many people tagged me and I just felt, with amazing love from semi-strangers and felt like I had to share each one to my story. So my s- stories were going to implode. But, you know, that's release day. I
1: think people... That's see. right.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, it's just trying to find a balance and trying to manage my own subscriber list outside of social media. I guess Substack would always. But you can download your subscriber list. You can yeah. keep record of that. And also I want to offer people who do take the time to read your newsletter something different that they're not seeing on their social media sites.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, a lot of authors are using Substack. It's a really interesting platform, I think.
0: Yeah. And how are things going
1: over on TikTok? Oh, mate,
0: so bad. I've got teenage children. I'm like, can't you get on TikTok and just hold my book up? No, that's not how it works. And they don't post Reels at all. They just look at Reels. So, I did do a little online mini course in TikTok to try and learn it. And I tried to go over there while I was having a break from Instagram. Just, it's good because it's not polished. I really yeah. like that because Instagram. Yeah, it's
1: a bit pretty, raw, isn't it?
0: Yeah. But also, the first thing I posted was just, this is how you get a book deal. And it was basically saying, keep writing. And it got 20,000 views. I didn't That's even wild. know that was. And so <laughs> then I was like, ah, oh, okay, this is easy. Nothing has gone. (laughs) Like now it's 200 views, if I'm lucky. And so I think it's just something you either need to devote to. And like the marketing team at at a meeting with me in their life, they said very kindly and gently, get off. What did they? They didn't say get off. They were like, you don't have to be on it. Like we've got young people here. You can do that. I think they were just trying to nicely say, if you're not loving it, don't do it. And also, just if you're just sharing the same content, which is your book, that's not how you sell books. Other people need to show your book and say yeah. they've
1: read it. Because
0: yeah. if, I, if I'm following an author, all they do is tell me that they wrote a book. You're like, okay, got it. What else have you got to engage with me about? Yeah. And so I could start a ranty I would smash the patriarchy TikTok, code, but I don't have the energy. I think I'm just gonna stick with Instagram and substack I feel yeah. more at home in, in those spaces. And I do have Facebook. I'm very bad at Facebook. It should be easy. If I can do an Instagram reel I should be able to do a Facebook post. But half the time I'll have friends say, That link you posted, it doesn't
1: work. <laughs> I think that's the thing, Kylie. I think you don't have to be on every platform. You dabble around and you pick the ones that work for you and just go with that. So what's next? Are you working on another book? What's happening? Sorry, that's probably a crazy question when this book's just come out. But, of course, behind the scenes we know that this one's been finished for a while and all that sort of thing. I'm just going to survive
0: the next four to six weeks. My husband's going away the day after my launch, so he's in the very bad books because... I don't really want to be juggling events and four kids. But anyway, never mind. We'll get over it eventually. I'll make him feel bad in the next two weeks and he's going to bring me something good back from his business trip. I have an idea for another book about coercive control. Obviously, I write light beach reads. Not. Including all the topics that, yeah, no, But obviously, that's another dark space. So, I need to have a little bit of a break. But I always have ideas gurgling in the background, as we all do as writers. But we also know an idea is not a book. Yes, I yeah. keep notes of ideas. Sometimes people's real lives, I'm like, God, best book.
1: Yeah, can I use that, please? Yeah, but you can't, can you? Connie, yeah. just to wrap up, what would you say is at the heart of your writing? Oh, that's a very good question. The heart of my writing,
0: I feel like it's truth seeking and honesty. I want to discuss big issues and make sense of the world through my writing. So I think it's putting characters under duress. It's trying to say that good people can do bad things and it doesn't make them a bad person. I think it's exploring the mostly probably women's place in society. And motherhood, I find many things about this system we live under very frustrating and spend a lot of my time ranting to my children about patriarchy. So feel it's best to channel that into a book. I don't think writers should write books with messages. I don't subscribe to that, but I do think they come out subconsciously because it aligns with our values in some way. So I think it's probably women. Frustrated women making sense of the world because mm. that is
1: probably me. You do a brilliant job of that in the 11th floor. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Where can people find you online?
0: Not on TikTok. Don't go to my TikTok. It's embarrassing. Instagram, I am Kylie or underscore writer. I have a website, which is just Kylie And I also have a sub stack called if I'm honest. Because I am honest and it gets me into trouble, doesn't it?
1: That's why we love to read it.
0: Yes, you can live my <laughs> care and sleep through my train wreck.
1: Yes, like they are the main places you can find me. Brilliant. And I'll put all those links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for chatting today, Kylie. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I really hope this book flies off the shelves for you because it is an absolute page turner.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me and for cheering me on. I I hope it flies too. I hope, you know, Reese and Nicole give it a little read and get on the old phone. And manifest ding.
1: Keep going with that. Thanks, Kylie. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.